think we're going. Awesome. Great, great. I'm right. Q. And I'm Gina. And this is Bird Road. And this is Bird Road. So, uh, yeah, we're coming to you live on Facebook Live. Um, trying to get comfy, trying to get, uh, you know, accustomed to the space, accustomed to the recording equipment. Um, normally, we'd have a little back and forth banter to open up the show, but you'll notice that my co-host is conspicuously absent. Um, in his stead, I have the lovely Gina Mazzoni. Um, and I want to welcome, on behalf of Gina and our guests who I'm about to introduce, uh, everybody who's watching to the Bird Road, Virtual Town, Bird Road Virtual Town Hall, hosted by myself, Gina Mazzoni. We're coming to you live on Facebook from the campaign page of our Returning two-time guest, Joe Sacco. Joe is a fixture in Las Vegas politics. He's a union trade show and conventions worker with IATSE Local 720 Stagehands. He's a proud member of the LGBTQ community, licensed realtor, uh, small business owner, social justice activist, and an advocate for society's most vulnerable people. He believes that change starts with each and every one of us, and he's running for Nevada Assembly in District 16. Joe, welcome to Bird Road. Hey, thanks a lot, Q. It's nice to be back. Appreciate you. So we're going to get into it in a second, but first I want to urge people to visit your site, votejosacco.com. Follow your Facebook page, which you're on right now. How easy is that? And mm -hmm. uh, get, get in touch to help out with the campaign, get involved in any way that you can. Now, the last time you were on, Joe, it was a disaster. We had, this, <laughs> we had, a, we had a great conversation, and then our call service back then sort of swallowed up the file, and the interview was lost to the sands of time. So this time around, I think we figured, why not up the ante? We'll do it live, run it through Zoom and host it on Facebook Live. Just get as many moving parts as possible and make it as complicated as possible. So <laughs> I, I, I think it should work out well, though. I think we've got everything set up. Um, if you are a fan of Joe's, but you're wondering who we are, we are Bird Road. Um, you can subscribe, rate, and review to our award-winning satirical leftist podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. Uh, you can visit us on uh, birdroadpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at David underscore Quinones. So, Joe, over the next hour, we're going to be peppering you with some questions. Uh, are you ready to get peppered? Let's spice it up, Q. I'm ready. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> right, so spice it up. <laughs> the first thing I always like to ask folks who are running for office is why? Why are you running? Well, great question. You know, for many, many years, I helped my mom, Gail Sacco, and uh, a bunch of community members. We uh, helped the homeless, helped the poor, shared meals with people. And, uh, you know, back in college at UNLV, I got involved with uh, marijuana reform laws. And uh, that sort of legislation activism uh, got me even more involved with the Democratic Party. And when, uh, when my mom, Gail Sacco, passed last year in August, you know, I realized that there's no time like the present and uh, we only have now. And 2020 with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, with everything that's going on in our city, in our state, in our world, uh, again, you know, now is the time to act. We've got so many pressing issues and I figured, you know, it would be a disservice to my mom to not move forward and take my leadership in the community to the next level. So that's why I'm running. So one of the reasons that you're on our show, obviously, is uh, that you are a progressive in, in, in all endeavors. Uh, and we've talked about this before, again, to, in conversations that have been lost to the sense of time. But I was wondering if you could tell us about how structural challenges sort of present themselves to 
Democrats like you, to progressives like you, in the face of trying to, you know, engage in electoral politics like you're doing now, getting elected, or even pushing other candidates in Nevada? Like, what are those structural challenges like? Because I know that they're the kind of challenges that you've been taking on for years. Yeah, great question. And so, you know, whether we're talking about Democrats or Republicans, I think the real conversation should be about the people and the establishment. And let me just define establishment as corporately controlled candidates uh, that have their, their hands tied, basically. So when you have Democratic candidates taking big money contributions, like here in Nevada, a lot of Democrats and Republicans take contributions from Barrick Gold. Barrick Gold is the mining industry giant. They have a sweetheart deal that is built into our state constitution. And because of that, they're taxed very low. They pillar, you know, they, they, um, they take the resources out of our mountains, out of our backyard. And, uh, and then they're off in the wind, you know, through Utah up to Canada with the profits. So when we're talking about systemic challenges for progressives, what we're talking about is being up against the money machine. So being a real progressive to me is about standing up and saying no to the big gaming money, no to the big pharmaceutical money, and no to the big industry money that, let's face it, when people write you a big check, you've got to answer the phone, and more than likely, you're going to do what they say. So I'm the kind of candidate in this race, the only candidate in this race, that has only taken small individual contributions from everyday people like you and I. And because of that, I'm unbought, I'm unbossed, and I can speak for the people, for the working families of Nevada. We hear that a lot lately from a lot of candidates like you and a lot of people who are sort of swearing off of that corporate money. But it's tough because it's a lot of money. You mentioned all of those industries that come knocking, especially when you have a decent chance at a, at a, at a seat or at a position of power. Um, it puts the progressive wing of the party at odds very frequently with the more corporate led wing of the party. And I just wonder from your perspective, uh, how challenging is it to be? You never see that. I always talk about, you know, how Republicans in, in some ways I admire them because you never see them at odds with each other. They will find ways to come to come together and, uh, and, and <laughs> like not infight like that. What is it like to be, um, you know, people call it purity test or whatever. They use this nonsense language, but like, what is it to, to, to be at odds with, uh, what is it like to be at odds with, um, you know, a whole wing of the party at times? Well, it, it's not a good feeling. Let me be honest. Uh, in this campaign, I've learned a lot of new things about running a professional, respectful, respectable campaign. And I'll just give you another example of how the system has uh, rigging behind the scenes. You know, we didn't get a whole lot of endorsements, official endorsements in this race. And I'll tell you why. That's because people make inside deals. They have inside relationships. Some of the organizations, for instance, they didn't even return our phone calls. We didn't get invited to interview. And another thing is in the Democratic Party, we see a lot of uh, checking off boxes. So candidates run around from organization to organization and they say, I'm this check off a box. I'm that, check off a box. And what happens is they bank up a whole lot of endorsements that they get to put on their mailer or on their website. Right. And essentially they are trying to bamboozle the everyday voter because these organizations are run by a handful of people 
And these organizations, for the most part, they don't survey their membership to do an endorsement. They have a small panel of two, sometimes three, four, or five individuals that are the insiders of those organizations. And when they sit down with the establishment, the insider pick, what happens is they end up writing a check for $5,000, which is the maximum in Nevada for the primary. Then they write another check for $5,000 in the general. And that gives an unfair advantage to the, uh, to the Democratic insider. And again, what that means is if we vote for the same old, same old, the people that we see the most billboards, the most signs, the most advertisements, and these are some of the candidates that don't even have a platform, right. okay, that don't get into specifics, that don't take chances, so to speak. And I think the time is now that we elect bold, progressive candidates, and for Nevada State Assembly District 16, which encompasses, by the way, all the hotels and casinos, the major ones, the airport, the, the airport university, well. yep. and the Las Vegas Convention Center, which when we reopen Nevada, that is the powerhouse of our economy and the powerhouse of our middle class. You know, I think I'm that candidate in this race because of how we've fundraised, because of how we've campaigned. And hopefully uh, in, this, in this 11th hour of the race, we can seal the deal and, and reach the voters with our platform because these are more than ideas. These are, these are uh, plans that will change people's lives and, and uh, ultimately the entire fabric of, of our community. So Gina, I want to give you a chance to ask a few questions too, but I want to also let all of our listeners know that uh, we are taking live Q&A and we will try to get to as many of your questions as possible. Um, Old friend of mine, former uh, Politico uh, uh, editor, Sergio Bustos, who now is at the South Florida Sun Sentinel running um, running their opinion pages over there, dropped a question. Joe, would you support a constitutional amendment to get money out of politics? Absolutely. In a word, absolutely. In fact, not only getting money out of, uh, out of politics, which we do that in a number of ways. We could create laws in our states that ban large contributions from PACs. We could do a state-level um, uh, overturning of Citizens United, which allows corporations to be treated like people. And uh, let's see, what else could we do? We could also have a more fair electoral system and instill something called runoff voting, or in some states they call it fusion voting, where let's say there's three Democrats in a race and uh, you you have a first pick and a second pick, but you don't really think that your second pick has a chance because they don't have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of clout, they don't have a lot of endorsements. What a fusion or runoff voting system would allow is it would get rid of that spoiler effect and then people could could rank choice right. their 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 politicians, their leaders. And I think when we do that, as well as open up the system to uh, more third party and nonpartisan candidates, I think that when we do that, we're gonna see candidates that represent everyday working people, millennials, and underserved groups like the LGBT community, our black community, and uh, especially here in Nevada, our Hispanic community. So I wanted to ask you, you've been involved in politics for quite a while. Um, How did you get involved in the first place? Tell us about that. Yeah, great question, Gina. I was actually at UNLV 
uh, right here in Nevada, getting my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. And uh, I stumbled upon a uh, very popular nowadays plant medicine that we all know and love to be cannabis. And frankly, without being silly about it, marijuana just really blew my mind. It opened up a new way of thinking about society. When I did my research about the war on drugs, I realized how unfair it was that you know middle upper class, uh, I'm generalizing here, but middle upper class uh, white people were able to get marijuana, uh, enjoy marijuana, even when they got in trouble, you know, you could uh, get a good lawyer and get out of trouble. And then looking around and seeing the disproportionate effect on our black and brown communities. And when I saw that injustice and I tied that in with the, the military industrial complex, I was just um, lit up, no pun intended, on politics. And I realized that there's many, many areas of our society that have these inequalities. And from there, I went on to do uh, years of pro-peace activism and then um, discovered groups like Food Not Bombs. And my mom got hooked on the idea that sharing food, giving food to people is a right, not a privilege. And, uh, you know, and now here we are today, many years later, and I've, I've been involved with politics with IATSE Local 720. I was elected to be an international delegate and uh, we protested at the Trump Hollywood Tower. In fact, uh, I took a lead role on that. And uh, really, it's, it's all about speaking truth to power. You know, in 2016, a lot of people were devastated. A lot of Democrats were very upset on how things all panned out at the end of the day. And I'm here today to say that we really need to start building coalitions, not only with Democrats, but also with our nonpartisan uh, neighbors and friends and family. Because a lot of our platform, which is about healthcare, housing, education, transportation, and criminal justice, these are all things that everyday people want common sense solutions. So, uh, you know, long story short, um, I just know that life is too short. Life is for the living. And I'm here to help make the community better one day at a time. And I mean, it's real popular now to be active in politics. <laughs> I mean, everybody's doing it, which is a good thing. It's a good thing to be progressive. But in a way, you could say that you've been doing it before it was cool. And uh, so <laughs> you've been doing it for a while. Yeah. Um, what skills and experience do you bring to the table? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, in the 25 years that I've lived in this district, I've worn a lot of hats. I've been a member of the union for 17 years. So I think my experience working hard, doing physically demanding labor, supporting our trade show and convention industry here in Las Vegas, you know, getting blisters on my hands, getting sore feet, working, you know, uh, 21, 23 hour shifts, setting up shows for large corporations that bring visitors to the city. Um, also, you know, having my, uh, my college education and, uh, and as well, you know, being a small business owner. I've been in the real estate industry for four and a half years. And, uh, you know, I, I understand what it's like to get up, dress up and show up every day and work hard for a living. Because look, if I don't get up, uh, dress up and show up, I don't get paid. And, you know, in fact, right now, I can really understand firsthand what a lot of uh, Nevadans, especially here in Southern Nevada, 
are feeling with this pandemic, with COVID-19. Uh, you know, myself, many union brothers and sisters, neighbors, friends, and family, we're all sitting and waiting to get through to unemployment. I've called, you know, 30, 40, 50 times a day, every day since March 27th, and I still haven't got my unemployment. Luckily for myself and my family, we've gotten some food assistance, we've gotten some rental assistance, but we're all just barely getting our head above water. And that's why the main plank of our platform with this people powered campaign is to create laws in Nevada that would bring us to a Medicare for all system. That means that no child, no grandparent, no individual, regardless of your employment status, regardless of whether you're black or brown or white, regardless of your economic position in the world, everyone is gonna be cared for because we have seen so much in the last few weeks how fragile human life is. And that's something that brings us all together, you know? And, and we wanna do that system with no co-payments, no deductibles. And again, I'm the only candidate in this race that's talking about these real issues and has a real plan to get it done. Um, and this isn't your first rodeo. You've ran for office in the past. Um, tell us, what have you learned like from those past experiences? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So <laughs> I ran for office. <laughs> this is actually pretty funny because I ran for office the very first time. I ran for city council in 2007. I was you know, a young 27-year-old man. I had no idea what I was doing. My friends were all activists, pro-peace activists people that were doing work in different areas of the community. We drew this hodgepodge ragtag team of people together and we had a budget of $1,000. We had no idea about electoral politics. We were simply grassroots activists and looking to make a difference. We were very idealistic. And although we weren't successful in that race, we were able to bring a conversation and move the other candidate to the left, to a more uh, progressive stance on issues right here in our backyard. And uh, again, I learned a lot from that experience. I learned even more though with my union, IATSE. And that, by the way, represents the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. We're the stagehands, the wardrobe workers, the AV techs, the uh, theater people. We're the ones that are all dressed in black and you never see us or hear from us, but we make the magic happen for Las Vegas. And we are the backbone along with all the other trade unions and uh, convention workers. So, you know, in my time with the union, I was elected, I, uh, I was elected at, like I said, as an international delegate, I was elected as a district delegate to represent the thousands of workers here in Southern Nevada. And, uh, and as well, um, I was one of the founding members of the Young Workers Committee. And let me just say that right now, uh, in our labor organization specifically, we most recently elected a very, very diverse uh, executive board. We have women, we have, um, we have uh, people of color, we have underserved, underrepresented people of the rank and file. And again, just to bring it back to endorsements, you know, um, I believe that unions, that organizations should always look to their rank and file in, in steering the ship in, in the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot and, uh, you know, 
we've run a very professional campaign. We've raised a ton of money. We've raised almost $10,000 and we're just shy uh, about $1,000 away from sending out some really powerful mail pieces so that we can reach the voters and uh, have a, a fair level playing field with the other candidates in this race. Awesome. Q, you have a question? <laughs> yeah, you know, and I want to turn to current events a little bit. And um, I mean, right now is a really tough time. And we mentioned it at the top of the show. Um, I can't imagine, Joe, what it's like trying to run a campaign right now, how difficult it must be. Campaigning is, I mean, it's all about handshakes, but it's more than that, too. It's personal connection and, you know, showing yourself in person to people who haven't seen you, especially an election like this, an assembly election with that kind of footprint. Um, it's about knocking on doors. I wanted to kind of dovetail a question that we got off of, um, off of the chat uh, with a question that I already had. How are you approaching this camp? How are you approaching this campaign? How are you trying to retrofit the way that you're campaigning to get in front of people and talk to people. Obviously we're doing some of it right now, but um, what is your strategy? How have you had to tweak it? And on the topic of COVID-19 with the upcoming budget deficits that you know that Nevada is gonna end up seeing just like every state, just like every every municipality, every, every government in the country, uh, what would you prioritize funding for? Because you know there's gonna have to be cuts. So I guess my question is two pronged, right? How are you dealing with this campaign in this, you know, difficult time to, you know, borrow an overused quote that everybody's spitting out these days? And then how will you deal with, you know, once you're in the seat, how will you deal with this difficult time or the aftermath yeah. of it, really? Yeah, well, first of all, um, let me start with the difficulty of campaigning online. We were getting a lot of momentum early on in this campaign. Like I said, it's very people powered and with everyone on uh, lockdown, we can't do the traditional fundraising like uh, going to events, going to democratic club meetings. Uh, we've done a lot with Zoom. All the endorsement interviews have been over Zoom. We had a bunch of really, really fantastic videos that I produced with one of our campaign staffers. We did so in very safe ways with uh, distancing and wearing masks when we were, you know, closer than six feet. And, uh, you know, again, the corruption is just inherent in these campaigns. In fact, what happened was our Facebook page, this campaign page that you're watching this video on, was maliciously and, uh, and frivolously reported five times in a row to Facebook. So we had our ads account turned off five times in a row and every single time when we appealed facebook said okay we made a mistake your ads are back on but then the sixth time that we got shut off right they said you're permanently deactivated and again it comes down to money and and meeting face to face or or through the camera through the computer through our phones with the voters so that's been a challenge we've shifted gears multiple times in our strategy throughout this campaign. We've used text message services to reach the voters. In fact, I'm sure some of our viewers are watching this because they got a text this afternoon. And uh, to your second question about, um, you know, um, dealing with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, 
look, it's really hard to ask people for money in a campaign. And it's especially difficult to ask people for money when you know that your friends and family, your brothers and sisters in the union, everyone is on a shoestring budget, waiting in line in their cars to get a box of food or you know, not sure how they're gonna pay their rent when the moratorium is over. And you know, you brought up the the funds, you know, the diminishing funds in all all the states across the nation. This is something that we're going to have to think outside of the box. We're going to have to work across the aisle, progressives, establishment Democrats, and dare I say it, nonpartisans and Republicans. Mm -hmm. Because let me tell you something: the United States of America. I grew up and was taught that this is the greatest country in the world. And I know a lot of people nowadays are disillusioned by that, that saying that we were brought up with. However, I will say this, you know, working with, with uh, you know, people that get up, dress up and show up every day, I can tell you that we are a strong community in our city, in our state, and across the federal government, across this nation. And if we can print money, if we can print money to go to war, to drop bombs on little kids on other, on other parts of the world, mm -hmm. if we can give big, big bailout money to corporations and special interests, if we can have this revolving door of casino money, mining money going back and forth through candidates' hands, then we can print money, we can find new lines, new sources of revenue that will rebuild our society from the ground up. And I've been talking about this a lot on my live videos, not only here on the campaign page, but also on my personal page, which I invite people to, to like and follow and connect with me directly. You know, uh, I'm sure uh, we'll, we'll put my phone number and contact info in the comments of this video. And here's the thing, we have a pivotal point in our history as human beings, as a entire planet, we have a key opportunity here to reimagine and co-create a better world for all of us. And that's what our campaign is all about. Yeah, you're getting a, you're getting a lot of uh, support there in the chat right now. People are saying like, what are our priorities? Are they people or are they profits? And it's, it's a really good point. Um, and to the earlier question, I think that that's a, a, another, you know, fair point that, um, when we talk about these like uh, draconian cuts that we're going to end up having to do that, that are going to end up happening because we, we know the nature of, you know, I'm in Florida, you're in Nevada. We know the nature of our state governments. We know the nature of, um, of, of the federal government at the moment. And uh, it, it's hard to think about this, but there are ways to raise money. There are ways that not everything has to be cut. It can be uh, and should be in many cases, um, you know, it should be funded. Uh, I think about things like education and and uh, and healthcare as we're talking about there. Um, Gina, I, I want to transition to you because Joe mentioned the makeup of the community. You are a born and raised, battle-born Las Vegan. Uh, yes. Uh, and you were talking, he, he mentioned the makeup of that community and what they are and how strong they are. And uh, he, he invoked the concept of, of tourism, which is obviously suffering right now. Um, yeah. So I, I wanted to toss that to you. Yeah, I was wondering now, obviously, like, it's no secret that Nevada is, you know, dependent on tourist tourism, it's our biggest industry here. Um, what do you think, like, it's high time, obviously, that we should bring other industries here? Um, 
how would you do that as an assemblyman, like attract new industries here? Absolutely. And again, great questions. Look, gaming alone cannot support our economy. We've learned that the hard way right here with this pandemic. And step one, as a Nevada State Assemblyman, I will work hard to get more revenue contributions from the gaming industry. Now, aside from that, we have to really think about growing our economy in smart, sustainable, environmentally friendly ways. And one organization, excuse me, one company that I believe we could be doing better and more private public partnerships with is Tesla. Tesla is right here in our backyard. You know, one of our platform issues is improving on transportation, okay? And uh, we can do that with new technologies above and beyond light rails. Look, our county commissioners, the uh, regional transportation department, they've been talking about and tossing the football around for years about a, right, uh, a light rail system that connects the airport to downtown and East Las Vegas to West Las Vegas, okay? A lot of parts of our city have really been forgotten. The monorail was a corrupt disaster. It was a private public uh, agreement that did not connect to downtown. We could possibly build off of that. Another thing that I wanna mention is as a uh, realtor here in Nevada, I've learned a lot about different innovative ways that we can develop our, our new construction, our new projects. I'm a big proponent and advocate of mixed use development. When we have at the ground level businesses and then up above offices and apartments, condos, different size uh, residential um, layouts, we can create a place where people can work, they can play and they can live. And when we do that, and starting with downtown, starting with the edge of our district, starting with our district right by the convention center and UNLV, when we create new villages where people can, can go to work, can buy groceries, can go to school, can participate in community events, we're going to see much more of a thriving small business economy. And also we'll, we will reduce the uh, addiction that we've been conditioned to have to fossil fuels. Not everybody needs to have a car. In fact, one thing I've learned in this stay home order is that I really don't use my car that much other than to do some showings for, for my business and to go to the grocery store. You know, it's time that we think about, you know, more bike lanes, more community gardens. And uh, again, when it comes back to driving new business to Nevada, I think that when we, when we build a more, a more diverse culture, when we invest in our arts and our community, we're gonna draw the greatest minds from around the world to add to the very, very bright young voices that we have right here. And I know we can do it. We can do it one day at a time when we all come together. And again, that's what this campaign is all about, all of us. There's another question I wanted to ask you. Um, what do you think is the one issue that everyone, no matter, regardless of their political party, could agree, agree on that would, an issue that would affect Nevada? Well, again, I, I've got to beat the drum for Medicare for all. Believe it or not, mm -hmm. you know, the Koch brothers, uh, everybody has heard of the Koch brothers. If you pay attention to politics, if not, let me explain. 
They're very conservative, fiscally conservative Republicans, and they have a huge think tank. And when they studied Medicare for all on the national level, what they found was that it will save money for the corporations, large and small, our very small mom and pop shops don't have to worry about, you know, uh, paying more into the system to cover their workers. And again, all of us, regardless of party or position or ideology, we all could have a moral and ethical system that, that covers us at half the cost that we're currently paying. Look, I've had Thanksgiving dinner with other realtors that are my friends, that are Republicans, that support President Trump, they couldn't be further down the, the scale from what I believe in and what I stand for. However, when we talk about healthcare as a right and not a privilege, when we talk about cutting the costs in half, eliminating the middlemen, going after the pharmaceutical industry and bringing our prescription drug prices down, they all agree. Believe it or not, they all agree. This is an issue that far too long has been used by uh, establishment Democrats and Republicans alike to divide people up. And it's time that we unite uh, through a progressive movement for a, a more moral system that covers us all. And we shouldn't have to go bankrupt over one little illness. I'll tell you, man, that is a, that is a hobby horse of mine. That those findings from from the the that Coke um, finance study, and that along with uh, some of the governmental, um, you know, budgetary explorations into the issue, because it infuriates me that time after time, the uh, the 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 number on the left side of the column gets called out. Thirty four or thirty two trillion dollars, thirty two two trillion dollars over ten years is what it's going to cost. That's how much your taxes are going to go up. Mm -hmm. But nobody wants mm -hmm. to mention the the fact that. 40 trillion it saves almost 40 trillion dollars and i'm paraphrasing those numbers i'll need to double check myself to make sure that that's accurate but i'm not far off folks and i might be wrong by a little bit a trillion here a trillion there but i'm not that far off and it, it infuriates me that those numbers are continually taken out of context that beat down the issue of medicare for all um yeah yeah q if i may add look i, I had an endorsement interview which was broadcast live on facebook from, uh, it was one of the local veterans organizations and they actually endorsed our campaign. One of the tough questions they asked me about Medicare for all, as well as uh, funding education in a stronger way, supporting pre-K for example, and uh, daycare for our mothers, our, our poor moms and dads that both have to go to work and have nowhere to leave their kids uh, you know, to, to be cared for and, and safely. When this veterans group asked me, what are the exact numbers? How are we going to pay for these things? The simple answer is, I'm not going to talk baloney to you, right? We have to look at the savings as well as the costs. So like Senator Bernie Sanders talked about during the 2020 as well as 2016 elections, look, if, if everyone had to pay just a little bit more but never had to have a, a bankruptcy, never right. had to take out a payday loan unexpected for, bill for out of nowhere payments right. deductibles you know we have to look at the entire the entirety of these programs and again i know it's very ambitious i want a fee-free public transportation system where our working families can get to and from work without having to take uh, you know filthy dirty paper money and and tokens in the buses you know um 
We want tuition-free uh, uh, public um, uh, college and university. When we do that, we're going to open doors to uh, disenfranchised, disproportionately affected groups like the Black community so that people can compete on a level playing field. And when we invest in our community, we're going to create so much diversity and there's so much strength. You know, I could beat the drum all day and night and tell you how, you know, I'm a proud member of the LGBT community. I've been openly gay for as, as long as I've been out, you know, which has been, you know, many, 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 many years now, okay? When I ran for city council in 2007, they wrote in one of the papers uh, in the LGBT magazine, Q Vegas, they said, openly gay community member runs for council. You know, I could check off all these boxes, but the bottom line is when we check off these boxes, we have to think about how we are more the same and not those things, the, the identities that separate us. And, and, and that's what I'm here for, you know, to listen to the voters and, and be a voice for the disenfranchised. So we got a question in the chat that is that per, that immediately grabbed my eye because we've got three three rebels on the on this call right now, and uh, I, I think it's an all rebel podcast, which which you, yeah. you love to, you love to see it. Um, UNLV rebels. <laughs> uh, this question says uh, that they're interested. This questioner says that they're interested in your experience at UNLV. What you would do to support the university more, and uh, did you ever participate in student government during your time at UNLV? And I'll just give a little caveat, a little explanation for folks um, who maybe are not in Las Vegas right now. Uh, UNLV, when it comes to education, it's the game in town. Like you have to go to find a college the same size or larger. You have to drive eight hours to Reno or however long it is. To, mm -hmm. It's not like here in Florida where we've got UM, FIU. Uh, you've got FAU, which is a, a huge college, just 30 minutes away. It's 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 a different setup. UNLV is a game in town. A lot of people's lives are built around the college, even though it's you know sort of pejoratively sometimes referred to as a commuter school. It, you know, it has a lot of culture and it has a lot of cultural relevance and resonance. It's inside of District 16. So again, this questioner was asking, uh, you know, about your experience at UNLV, what you could do to you know. <laughs> It, yeah, yeah. Support the university a bit more and um, about your, your time there. Sure. Great question. I appreciate that. Those in the chat. Well, first of all, look, in my personal and public life, I pride myself in being super authentic and transparent. So I'm going to just tell you all exactly what my college, uh, my five years of college was like. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> Get ready for this. So my first semester, I had a lot of anxiety. I had just come out of Bishop Borman High School, which is a Roman Catholic college prep school. I was very sheltered growing up. I, I never knew what it was like to, uh, to be you know, in, a, in a public college setting. And let's just be honest, UNLV's reputation for being a party school is 100% true. <laughs> so anyhow, the first semester I took four classes and I failed all four classes. Basically, I was too stressed out. I didn't know how to manage my time. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I got myself into. And frankly, I had a moment like so many others where I thought maybe college isn't for me. Maybe it's time to just jump right into a vocation. And guess what? There's nothing wrong with that. However, because like so many other young people at the time, I didn't know what I really wanted to be when I grow up. 
So I thought, you know, it's probably important that I do get a college degree that I can, you know, fall back on. And so I pushed myself. I enrolled at CSN, which at the time was Community College of Southern Nevada. Right. And, uh, you know, at that time, I felt more comfortable at the community college level. It was a little less expensive. It was about half as expensive per credit. And uh, I excelled really, really, really quickly. I had a good time. I got socialized with people. I started taking classes that interested me, regardless of moving towards a degree. I took acting classes. I took, um, you know, criminal justice classes because I was interested in maybe becoming a detective or something like that. And, and then I ended up going back to UNLV after a year of community college. And uh, ultimately, I graduated with my bachelor's in criminal justice with uh, enough credits that I probably could have got a minor in sociology, although I never filled out the paperwork. But here's the bottom line. In my time at UNLV, the answer is no. I was not involved with community, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the uh, student college government, government yeah. the student yeah. government. I was on the opposite end of the spectrum. I was under the trees, under the stairwells, uh, smoking some good marijuana with my friends because I learned that it took the edge off for me. It helped me to focus on studying. It helped me with socialization. You know, I'm, I'm diagnosed with ADHD and I don't take pharmaceuticals. No judgment for those that do, but you know, it, it can be difficult yeah. When, when you have so much neurodiversity that the standardized education system just doesn't fit for you. And, you know, I just want to segue that into our public school system. I 100% support uh, finding new innovative ways to have indiv individualized uh, educational experiences for all of our kids because no two, no two kids are, are built the same. And, uh, you know, in a nutshell, that was my that was my time at UNLV. I graduated with just under a B average. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot in the School of Hard Knocks as a working class Joe for the last 17 years. And now I want to take all my experiences, all my diversity. You know, I grew up in a restaurant owning family. You know, um, I have my own small business now. You know, I'm not a millionaire. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not independently wealthy. I'm struggling like a lot of people. And I think that that's the kind of uh, fresh, uh, well-rounded experience that, that we could use in the Nevada State Assembly. So let's segue a little bit towards your, your, your primary and what's, what's going on there. Um, we, you know, you have a, a, a popular person who's leaving the, um, who's leaving the seat in District 16. And uh, you have a number of um, opponents, not going to bother to mention their names because if they want to be on the show, they can spend 20 years being a progressive and <laughs> build up their bona fides and then come ask me to be on the show. And they're welcome to do it, but they don't fit that bill right now, but you do. So for the listeners out there, draw a distinction between you and the other people who are running for this seat. What sets you apart? I think you've done a pretty good job so far, but if you can succinctly, like what what sets you apart? What makes you a different candidate? Sure. Well, for one, nothing that I've ever earned in my life was just handed to me. Okay. I had a great childhood. My family did very well. However, I had a paper route when I was a little kid. 
I had to work hard. That's why I joined the union. That's why I decided to work hard with my hands, with my physical body, with my labor. You know, I could have easily got into government many, many years ago, you know, rubbed shoulders, rubbed elbows with all the right people. And that just never really resonated with me, okay? I grew up, I was bullied. You know, I acted very flamboyant as a kid. The other kids, the bullies just like, like how a dog can smell fear. They could just smell something different about me. And they called me all sorts of names that I won't repeat here today. And I've been through some really, really challenging, difficult and traumatic events growing up. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that the other candidates haven't, you know, had their, their challenges or their difficulties. But again, I've been on the ground running for a long time. And uh, all my businesses are right here in Nevada, uh, which is, you know, my stage work and my real estate business. And, um, you know, I'm not looking to, to further my career by just shaking all the right hands and cutting, you know, taking all the right paychecks, okay? I've got a long history in the community. Anybody that knows uh, what myself, my mom, Gail Sacco, and others associated with us have done, I always speak truth to power. I take chances. I'm authentic. Again, I'm the only candidate in this race that even has a platform. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in it to win it. And we can't do it alone. And that's why we're here doing this virtual town hall. That's why we're engaging with the voters every single day. In fact, earlier today, I personally delivered 30 surgical, uh, surgical masks that, um, that are, are, you know, of a high quality. They're like gold these days. That's like, that's like, that's like, you know, you know, trading in gold these days. Actually, one of one of the people I gave the masks to, they texted me back after I left them on the door and they got them. They said, you know, you, you left two gold bricks at my front door and I appreciate wow. it. <laughs> and, you know, this isn't meant to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying that, you know, some people can talk, uh, some people can act. And it's unfortunate that the establishment, sometimes they uh, they ignore or make fun of people that are from the grassroots community, the activists that have been authentic like myself that have been transparent and uh, and taken chances to uh, to improve our society and you know uh, I, i've got nothing specifically bad to say about uh, the other democrats in this race you know um in fact uh, i i know uh, i was going to save this till the end of the show but i'll just tell you right now for our listeners that are watching uh, we reached out, my campaign, myself personally, emailed the other three Democrats in the race, and we very cordially, respectfully invite them to a candidate debate this Sunday, May 3rd. We have a Fox 5, a former Fox 5 reporter uh, that is uh, signed on to moderate, so it'll be nice and fair. And uh, I, I really just want the voters to get a shot at seeing what we're all made of and may the best person win. Yeah, that's great. You don't really get that um, level of engagement on a lot of times at this level of races. Like a lot of a lot of times, uh, somebody in the chat actually mentioned it earlier that often people don't even people living in these districts don't even know who their elected representatives are a lot of times. So, um, but Gina, oh, yeah. let me not let me let me not cut you short. I know that you had a, a question on yeah. your mind. Yeah, I wanted to 
to ask you, Joe, what is the number one issue you're most passionate about? Well, I know you're a really passionate guy and it's probably hard to pick, but if you were going to pick one, what would it be? Yeah, well, I think we've talked enough uh, in this show about Medicare for all. Of course, that's our number <laughs> one point. However, let's take this opportunity to talk a little, about, a little bit about affordable housing, okay? And that's really, besides the marijuana activism that I did in college and through the years working uh, in the industry as a consultant, um, I think it's also important that I mention, you know, the work that I've done with our our neighbors that happen to not have uh, stable uh, long-term housing, okay? And I have an idea for affordable housing for a moral and ethical minimum standard of housing that would completely eliminate homelessness in the entire state of Nevada. Now, I'm not reinventing the wheel. We, we've studied a program that they have in the state of Utah just next door to us. In the state of Utah, they created a tiny home village where, and these, by the way, are not luxurious. They're not mini mansions or anything like that, but they give a dignified place for people that have less, that maybe have uh, uh, mental health issues, or they are our veterans, or they are folks that um, are just having a hard time getting, getting stable jobs. Because let's face it, there's not a great job for everyone throughout society from end to end. Right. So Utah created this tiny home village where for a cost at right about $17,000 per year, they can house people year round. And let me just put that $17,000 price tag in perspective. I've spoken to homeless folks on the streets of Las Vegas, right here in District 16, that have been arrested for nonviolent crimes such as sleeping on the sidewalk. Um, yeah, one of the one of the coolest, in our parks. Las yeah. Vegas, Las Vegas. I would say maybe along with Orlando and a few other cities. Um, but Las Vegas, I love the city to death. I lived there for eight years. One of the cruelest, most like unforgiving places to be homeless. Generally, oh, one yeah. of the cruelest and most unforgiving places to be down on your luck to mess up so, in life. Yeah, yeah. Q, great point. You know. Um, like we have these massive casino hotel developments. We look at all these empty hotel rooms. And just a few weeks ago, the city thought it was a good idea to uh, draw lines in parking a parking lots. lot and have the homeless people. This is a disgrace. We are a worldwide embarrassment and we can do better Las Vegas. We can do better Nevada. And I have a plan to do that. I just to finish up what I was saying about the cost. I've talked to homeless people that have been arrested up to 100 times in a year, arrested for sleeping on a, on a, on a bus bench, arrested for falling asleep and, and being in a park after hours. And what happens is federal and state tax dollars upwards to $1,000 a night puts these people in jail three nights at a time. They get released on their own recognizance, which means they, they see a judge on a video screen and they get let loose back onto the streets with no help, with no direction. And our jails and prisons are being used not only as a emergency housing shelter, but also as an emergency mental health facility. Yeah. One of my best friends that lives right around the corner from me was the uh, director of one of our mental health hospitals for six years. She told me so many stories about how uh, homeless folks will walk out into traffic and 
in some cases, it is determined that they are actually pretending or uh, exaggerating their mental state to be considered suicidal or a risk to themselves or others so that they can get a bed in a hospital for three nights on a legal 2000 hold. And we've got to do something about this. We have the resources. We have the will. We just have to elect candidates that are going to boldly push for these ideas and and gather the the coalition support to make it really happen. So tell us a little bit about this place where you've lived for 25 years, District 16. It includes, like you said, a big chunk of the strip. It's got McCarran International Airport, one of the biggest airports or busiest airports in the world, Um, UNLV. I think that in that area, as somebody, again, that lived in Vegas for eight years, I think that sometimes people forget that there are residents there, that there are people who live there and they forget that there's, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, citizens in this, they just think of it as just this big playground. But um, tell us about district 16 and like, what is the key or critical issues facing it? Um, you know, sure. apart from like yeah. what we've already talked about. Yeah. So most of assembly district 16 is considered midtown or central Las Vegas uh, again, for those that don't know, our district encompasses from Charleston all the way to Warm Springs, from I-15 and including all of Las Vegas Strip, as well as far to the east as Eastern. These districts are like pu- puzzle pieces. Now, to your point about Las Vegas being, um, let's just be honest, Las Vegas is a very transient town. There are some people that have been born and raised here and lived in one house for their entire life. But that really is the exception and not the rule. Even myself, look, I lived for 15 years. I owned my home on South 8th Street, right down the street from the Stratosphere, you know, about a a five, 10 minute bicycle ride to the Las Vegas Convention Center. I sold my home a few years ago. And uh, when the market was doing really great, I decided to, you know, cash out my home and invest in myself and do some projects, uh, passion projects. I rented a condo on Maryland Parkway by Flamingo, you know, uh, right around Molaski Family Park. And, you know, I saw night after night looking out my window, tents going up and people sleeping there, you know, using the barbecue grills to have bonfires to keep warm at night. And again, I'm not saying that that's right. It's just that people don't have any place to go. And then, you know, when my mom got very sick a couple of years ago with lung cancer after being a cigarette smoker for 50 years, uh, eventually, you know, I decided to move in with my mom and dad to help my dad care for my mom and go through that, uh, you know, grief process, you know, the, um, the grief that comes before the passing and the grief that comes after the passing. And, uh, and it was just uh, last month that I decided to move from uh, from where my dad lives in John S. Park to the Las Vegas Country Club. And look, I don't have an extravagant place here. It's very nice. I'm very blessed. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I have a nice small condo that I'm renting here. And the reason why I bring this up is, again, because of authenticity and transparency. I've lived in different areas. I've lived with the rich. I've lived with the working poor. I've lived with the middle class. And, you know, in fact, over the years, I've taken the buses. I've been without a car before. I've been on unemployment multiple times over the years as, as a stagehand when, when our industry goes up and down. 
And this entire time over the span of 25 years, I have always had my residents right here in District 16. And I can tell you without naming names that there are other candidates that will move into a district just 30 days before an election and they have no idea what the landscape, the lay of the land is. Yeah. And uh, again, the establishment, the, the dirty politics, it's very, very tricky. And I'm just glad we've, we've recruited a lot of great volunteers. We've made phone calls. We've uh, dropped literature with people and we've gotten so many individual contributions. Uh, I dare to say we've probably got more individual contributions than any other candidate in the race. And I'm very proud of that, that, that we've built together. Again, it's not about me, it's about all of us. And uh, you know, District 16 is very working class, very diverse, and connects all of Las Vegas. These carpetbaggers you talk about, man, they've never they've never stumbled out of double down at three in the morning. They don't know. They don't know what the district. <laughs> uh, Gina, I, I know you had a question that you wanted to ask. Yeah, um, you have some really bold ideas, um, and you have them published on your website, which is great because I haven't seen any of the other candidates with their platform on their website. But um, you had mentioned uh, fee-free public transportation. Can you tell us yeah. what that would look like? Absolutely. Look, um, plenty of times when I was without a car, I worked, you know, 20, 22, 23 hour shifts setting up for big shows like the Consumer Electronics Show, um, you know, home builders, all these big industries. And it's people like us, working class people that keep this city alive. You know, we've seen when all these casinos close, our economy has all but crumbled. And when I talk about a fee-free public transportation system, I'm talking about being, being ethical, being dignified, treating our working class, our middle-class families with the respect that they deserve, okay? Look, you know, it gets to be 120 plus degrees in the summertime. I've never met a person that said, I love taking the bus every day. And that's not a dig on our transportation system. There's lots of places where we can improve. We're, we do have some great things about our system, okay? You know, the seniors and, and people that are, um, that are less fortunate, you know, that go through uh, nonprofits and special programs to get bus tokens. That's a great start. But, you know, within the age of the coronavirus, we have to really rethink. A lot of small businesses that are still open are doing credit card only. And they're doing that for a reason because handling all this cash money is spreading disease. And, and it's, just, it's just outrageous that in a city that can build casinos, that can build you know, the Luxor, the Excalibur, the Stratosphere, if we can envision it, we can make it happen. Look at the stadium all the public tax dollars and, and, and the room tax uh, money through the, through the tourism that has made this thing happen practically overnight. If we can do all of that, if we can go to endless war, if we can create nonprofits where CEOs have, uh, where, where directors have $300,000 salaries, if we can do so much with this money that serves the 1% that serves our CEOs of, of gaming and mining, then we can certainly come up with, with the resources and the new streams of revenue 
to support working families. You know, one thing that I haven't really talked about on our website, and I really think that this is something that, that I want to talk about more in the weeks to come and after the primary, when, when we're in the general election, okay, we could even provide Wi-Fi for the whole city. You know, it's, it's high time that we rethink our entire fabric of society and start building systems that make sense for all of us. Yeah. It's just common sense. Yeah. Yeah. What about climate change? Um, Nevada is, you know, obviously it's getting hotter and hotter here. I just read a really disturbing article last week about how hot it's going to continue to get. Um, what are some ways that we could mitigate that here? Absolutely. I think that we really have to relook at our solar power system here. We need to think about ways that people can buy in as a community. Okay. When I owned my home and in my day-to-day -day real estate business, I see the contracts with these different solar power companies. And unless you have a big chunk of change to buy your system, you're going to be leasing it. And for some people, it's just cost prohibitive. You know, there's a reason why our apartment complexes and our condo projects and our new developments are not incorporating solar power because the entry to that economy, the entry to that industry is not affordable. Just like with the marijuana, the cannabis industry, okay? We should be letting all of our prisoners out today, not tomorrow. If they've committed a nonviolent offense because of cannabis, they should be let out yesterday. And you shouldn't have to be a millionaire or be in a millionaire billionaire club to get a license for a dispensary. So whether we're talking about solar or cannabis, both these industries need to be opened up in a smart way that lets the average Joe get in on the game. The black community and our Hispanic community, they should be the owners of these dispensaries. Yeah. These condos and apartments, you know, Siegel Suites, they've done great for themselves. Why don't they have solar power? Why don't they uh, have solar roofs on, on all, of, uh, all of the businesses, small and large? We have more sunlight here than anywhere else virtually. Yep. And it, it, it doesn't make sense because we have too many special interests in our state assembly, in our government at large, and we really have to start making these systems once again work for everyday people. I have another question. Um, you're a proud gay man, and you've been out and proud for a while. Um, and Las Vegas has always been pretty LGBTQ plus friendly. Um, what are some things that you think um, that you bring as a gay man that would help build that community here and help you represent sure. them? Yeah, well, first of all, I wanna say my hats off to our governor, Steve Sisolak and our democratic uh, legislators because um, we got two key pieces of legislation uh, passed and signed in 2019. One was the, um, uh, the Senate bill that um, prohibits gay panic defense. What that means is, let's say um, you know, you're part of the LGBTQ plus community, you come out of a club at two o'clock in the morning and uh, everyone's drinking, having a good time, and you, uh, you bump elbows with someone like the young man that years ago, uh, years ago at uh, Planet Hollywood when it was uh, the Aladdin, 
this young man, young gay man, he bumped elbows with, with a straight person, uh, a very homophobic heterosexual person in the bathroom, bumped elbows on the way out of the bathroom. This young man who had done some modeling previous to his attack was beaten to a pulp. And, uh, and, and in so many of these examples, you know, um, the, the criminal offender gets off easy. And what this gay panic defense uh, ban has done is what it means is that if, uh, if someone beats you up or God forbid kills you and it's motivated by discrimination against your sexual preference or identity, then uh, they can no longer use that as a defense because prior to that ban, uh, someone could, uh, could do a heinous crime and then say, you know, I was just, I was really in a panic because I thought that they were hitting on me or I thought that they were, you know, going to hug me or kiss me or try to hold my hand. And, uh, you know, I, my hat's off to the legislature uh, on passing that in 2019. We also had another key piece of legislation uh, informing an HIV, uh, a modern HIV task force. And I think that's also important, you know, in, in our community, we're seeing uh, people get sick from these medications like Truvada, we're seeing uh, class action lawsuits and, you know, nobody wants to get sick. One of my neighbors right down the street in Paradise Palms, he contracted HIV uh, 30 years ago and he's still alive and kicking. In fact, he contracted it because he took on, uh, he was a participant in a hepatitis vaccine that at the time was experimental and then several years later, he got a phone call from the local government saying, hey, you know, uh, we accidentally injected you with live HIV, so you might want to come in oh and get God. tested. You know, another thing I want to mention is, and I talked about this earlier in, in the town hall here, is that I was bullied relentlessly through grade school and high school. And I think that that experience has made me the man that I am today, which is why I speak truth to power which is why I stand up to the bullies and, and you know, throw down, so to speak, in a nonviolent, peaceful protest way, you, you know, using our voices. And as our next assemblyman, that's what I want to do. I want to, you know, uh, take down these bullies and elevate the voices of young people and stand up for our trans community. One more example I want to give, you know, I have a friend, um, uh, you know, a constituent. Uh, actually, he's not a constituent. Technically, he's right outside my district, right outside our district. He lives uh, in downtown Las Vegas, worked for a major company that I won't mention right now uh, because I didn't get his permission. I don't want to, uh, you know, cause a stir. You want to blow him up. You don't want to be doxing yeah, people out here, Joe. Exactly. But let me just say, I talked with a longtime resident of Nevada that told me that they lost their job after six years of of wonderful service to one of the bigger companies in downtown okay one of the companies i'll give you all a hint that invested over 500 million dollars in the redevelopment of las vegas our downtown area and this person lost their job because they were falsely reported to hr and it was a hit job because this person is a proud gay man Look, we've come a long way in the community, in society, and, and we've still got a long way to go. On the federal level, we've got to pass the Equality Act. We have got to have a world 
that is safe for all of us. And that's what I want to do. That's what I bring to the table uh, as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Well, let me just say that story. Let me just let me just say that that story is a pile of crapos. Um, I don't want to drop anymore. I'm sorry. Like, come and on. By the way, point, I, you yeah, got to know yeah. who we're too. I'm talking about. Um, yeah. No, yeah we're gonna and look, that. you know, like every every situation is different. Uh, again, you know, um, the details are in the fabric. But the of point course. of the story is that uh, discrimination exists in housing, in jobs, in healthcare, and it's it's time. The time is now to act. We can't just uh, keep doing the same old, same old. So we want we want to let you go, but we want to get we want to get your thoughts on one last question, and um, okay. that one is that uh, your mother, Gail Sacco, was as the Review Journal called her a fierce advocate for the homeless. She spent her uh, a big chunk of her life being of service, trying to help people. She was somebody that everybody knew in Las Vegas. And um, yeah. sadly, you and Las Vegas lost her last year, a huge loss for, for the Valley. Um, what did you learn about people and service from watching her during your life? Yeah, well, one thing that really stands out about growing up with my mom and seeing the... Um, sometimes perceived to be aggressive stands that she's taken against the mayor, past governors, our city council, for example. Um, one thing that comes to mind is the phrase, what is popular is not always right, and what is right is not always popular. And let me tell you that if my mom were with us alive today, she, would, she wouldn't literally do this, but she would joke about throwing a pie at Mayor Carolyn Goodman for her recent comments about using Las Vegas as a test for what could happen. Look, nobody wants the city opened more than I do. We don't have unlimited money to stay closed. The, the numbers of, of those that have unfortunately died from this virus are very, let's be honest, they're very small compared to how big of a population we are. I've got to give credit where credit is due. And you know, this may cost me a couple of votes, but I'm just gonna lay it out in a very transparent and authentic way. We've got to find a balanced approach to opening our states from coast to coast because being on pause is unfairly hurting our most poor, our most vulnerable people. We've got to do it responsibly Again, we've got to reimagine a better world for all of us. And I know that together we can accomplish that. It just takes people standing up and taking chances and, and, and not being afraid to speak truth to power, okay? And this should not be a partisan issue about opening up. Uh, unfortunately, it's gotten pretty dirty. Uh, that's what it's turned into. It's, yeah, it, it really has. And it's, it's become um, just like, a full throttle on one end versus full throttle on, on the other end. And yeah, it, it, there, yeah, there has not been a lot of room for nuance. And one last thing on the coronavirus and opening up, it is imperative that our working people, whether they're labor organized or not, all of our working people have got to be healthy and happy when we do return to work. So we've got some tough decisions to make. Our governor, our Democratic governor, has you know crossed the, the aisle and worked with uh, very conservative 
gaming uh, casino executives like Steve Murin of MGM. And, uh, and we've got some really, really powerful business interests that are at the helm of the ship when it comes to the uh, COVID-19 task force. And we really need to look at the whole picture when we're talking about reopening. Where is the money flowing and who's benefiting and, and how can we keep our community safe and also let people make a living? So I wanna bring a very balanced uh, approach and a very stable hand, a steady hand to the discussion. And uh, we should really be listening to our community members and uh, you know, our small business people, our, our workers, uh, as we move forward and get back to work. So his name is Joe Sacco. You can learn more about him at votejoesacco.com. Follow this page where you're watching this video right now, his, his Facebook page. Uh, get involved with his campaign. He's, uh, again, it's uh, Assembly District 16 in uh, the Nevada Assembly. Joe, thanks for coming on Bird Road. Hey, thank you very much. Appreciate everybody. Have and thank you, for my, thank you for my pinch-hitting guest hosts, the lovely Gina Mazzoni. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gina, you're a rock star. My, not, knowing, not knowing where to like put my eyes. Like, I, yeah, like, no, I was the same way. I, so. I forgot to ask uh, to the camera, but whatever. Well, <laughs> we're keeping our eyes it, forward, so. and, and we're yeah. all in this together. Appreciate you and both. I'm proud to support Joe Sacco. <laughs> UNLV, go fight win. Yes, Rebels. Yeah. Woo!